0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I have the great pleasure of interviewing Associate Professor Anna Erickson of Monash University about her co-edited book, Neurodisability and the Criminal Justice System, Comparative Therapeutic Responses. She is a co-editor with Gay T. Lansdell, Bernadette J. Saunders, and herself, of course, and it was published by Edward Elgar Publishing in 2021. I'll let Professor... Erickson introduce herself. So without further ado, Professor Anna Erickson, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Jane. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: It's a pleasure to have you. Now, just to get us started, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to edit this book.
1: Sure. Um, So I'm a professor of criminology here at Monarch, and I've been interested in in, um, the responses to crime since my PhD, which i finished back in 2007, um, and in 2010 I met with Gay and Bernadette my co-editors and we had similar kind of interests uh, around responses to, to crime and particularly in relation to vulnerable populations. So we applied for a research grant that we that we got that looked at the infringement system here in Victoria. Um, This is a system that deals with fines of of not having a ticket or, or, you know, uh, being drunk in the park or something like that. Um, And we look in particular at vulnerable populations, which in this context is those with mental illness, drug and alcohol dependencies, uh, homeless and and so on and so forth. And they often overlap and and become entangled in in the justice system. We also learned that a a kind of a a significant cohort of, of that group had acquired brain injuries. Of, uh, of, of, some, of some description. So that was kind of how that started and an interest in, in that and why that group is kind of gets stuck, you know, entangled in the system more than other people and, and, and end up in prison more than other people and, and, and so on and so forth. So we, we applied for another research grant that we, that, we, that we got looking at adults with acquired brain injury in Victoria, in Australia, and later on another grant looking at young people, so those under 18 and, and kind of those trajectories. So there are those two projects that kind of underpin this book, um, the term neurodisability was something that's kind of just been emerging in the last couple of years, really, as an umbrella term to, to talk about uh, not just people with acquired brain injuries, uh, but with with uh, uh, feed alcohol uh, spectrum disorder, FASD, uh, uh, other cognitive disabilities and including intellectual disability that, that, that's slightly more attention to. So we wanted to kind of broaden the term and see see who who are those people, how are they involved in the in the criminal justice system, and what happens on the international stage because people are the same everywhere, uh, but the responses to them differ depending on culture and politics and, and so on and so forth. So so that's that's the kind of background, and I think also really wanting to look for at least suggestions for solutions or how to make things better. Like that was a real aim for this one, as opposed to just describing the problem. We want people who work in this field to then say, how do we fix this?
0: Yeah, and I do think that comes through in the book. It's As you say, it's not just a description of all these different issues, but in fact, you do offer solutions and suggestions for reform and the sort of practical issues that people do deal with on the ground And I found that really interesting, the sort of contrasting, um, and we'll get into this, but the sort of contrasting issues that people face, for example, if they do have fetal alcohol syndrome compared to um, intellectual disabilities, uh, compared to juveniles, uh, as an example. So now can you tell me a little bit about um, what is the prevalence then of people with neurodisabilities in the criminal justice system?
1: Yes. um, I think that the way I might approach this is to focus more Exclusively on the acquired brain injury first, um, because the, the prev- and then the prevalence will, will increase. Uh, but the the I think it might be important for for listeners to, to understand what we're talking about and what kinds of uh, how people have acquired brain injury and and what that means. I think they will they will not um, uh, oh, save us time, but a lot of those themes uh, reoccur in in relation to different kinds of neurodisabilities. Um, so so an acquired brain injury refers to Um, any damage inflicted uh, on the brain after birth. Uh, And it can be caused by a range of factors, including head trauma, stroke, disease, infection or substance abuse. a lot of people make a dis- distinction between acquired brain injury and traumatic brain injury, but the traumatic role of the TBI is literally just a like a violent blow to the head or a head injury that is traumatic in its nature from a medical point of view, uh, but that falls under the umbrella term of acquired brain injuries. Um, the effects of, of an ABI can be described as both cognitive and physical, emotional, and an impact on independent functioning. But the symptoms vary considerably depending on the individual and the severity and location of their injury and how the injury happened in the first place, um, which makes it challenging to, to diagnose, to identify and to respond to. Like There's no one-size-fits-all when, when we're talking about neurodisabilities. It has to be an individual focus. Um, and symptoms can, can include slurred speech, uh, loss of taste and smell, uh, sensory impairment, pain and fatigue, uh, issues with memory, concentration, uh, problem solving, all, all those kinds of things. And, and we'll see how that impacts, I think, on the involvement in the justice system. Uh, other things like aggression, irritability, impulsiveness, lack of judgment, they also come under this, uh, both for the for the ABI but also for many of the other neurodisabilities, which makes people more prone to maybe coming to the attention of authorities and then to police and then the then the cycle begins. Um, quite often, these or behaviours can be misinterpreted. Um, was one person we spoke to? We wrote an article about that. He said, "I'm not drunk. I have an ABI," and, and he he um, had been in and out of prison, but he also had an acquired brain injury, which made he his sense of balance was really bad. So he fell over literally quite quite often if, if he didn't have his cane, and was picked up by police for for being drunk. Um, and then trying to explain that it's a brain injury uh, is, is not always easy to do uh, in, in those circumstances. Um, another challenge, I think, is that they often coexist with other um, things uh, like um, drug and alcohol abuse, uh, mental illness, and, and so on and so forth, which all makes people more prone to have another brain injury Yeah, because because of all these, these things. Um, and and because you can't often you can't see it yeah so' it's, it's described as a hidden disability um, because people can have it without unless you have some of these obvious symptoms you can't see it you can't see that someone don't understand what you're saying uh, or they can't maybe the memory is, is, is not as as, as as good as it should be and, and you can't see that so it's often missed or misdiagnosed which is a serious issue that I think all the chapters uh, in, in the book um, deals with um, prevalence. Um, a quiet brain injury in the general population is around 2%. In prison, we're estimating up to 40. And when we add the other kinds of neurodisability, like FASD um, and, and other kinds of trauma, uh, su- some estimate up to 80%, especially for uh, juvenile uh, offenders or young prisoners, uh, maybe slightly less in, in adult prison, but it is a it is a massive issue, basically.
0: Yeah, it's... Um... It's surprising and it, it is very concerning that you know there is this much higher correlation of people in prisons with, for example, acquired, acquired brain injuries and other neurodisabilities compared to the general population. So one must wonder what is causing this dissonance. Um, I want to move to the next chapter in the book, um, which is titled Neurodisability, Criminal Law Doctrine That Is Not Pure Insanity, and it's by Amanda C. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. I guess insanity is one of those ones where people think they know about it and it gets a lot more media attention comparatively. Um so I I'm wondering then can you tell me about any sort of coincidences and divergences between neurodisability and insanity?
1: Uh yes and I I think the I think the point that Amanda is making her chapter is that they are not the same. Um neurodisability is not insanity. the, the the problem is that there is no legal defence available for people with a neurodisability that is kind of enshrined in law, but there is one for insanity, yeah? So so from a, from a lawyer's point of view, that's what you would use if you can uh, because that would then, you know, explain the behaviour and, and, and uh, particularly taken into account in relation to sentencing perhaps. So, so yeah, so basically people who are have a neurodisability are not insane, Um in the legal sense of the word and, and I think we should be really careful to think about them as such. And and she talks really interestingly in her book about the kind of faulty brain. I know for a criminology point of view, people look for like the criminal gene. Of course there aren't one. Yeah. People just certain behaviors are criminalized over a time and place. That differs. So it, the crime is whatever law says it is. Um so if we if we go too far here and say, so maybe a a, a brain injury or, or someone who's born with, with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder if they are somehow faulty i think we're going down a really dangerous route when it comes to the legal responses um so i think it, it requires a really um a nuanced approach so, so but maybe there should be a, a, a defense or, or something in the in the legal system that recognizes disability neurodisability um in a much more explicit way, and particularly, I think, in relation to sentencing, as opposed to, uh, you know, it's not about excusing behaviour; it's about understanding why people do what they do, and, and, and I think, as we cover in a few of these chapters, that the, the criminal justice system it uses punishment as a way to change behaviour, because that's the aim, yeah? It fails for so many reasons. But if you are unable to change your behaviour because you have a neurodisability, of course it is ineffective, but it's also almost cruel and unusual, yeah, to punish people for something they cannot help but do.
0: Yeah, and that makes sense, especially considering um, neurodisabilities may be sort of a permanent an ongoing um, part of someone and it's a lack of support and accommodation which um, may cause this sort of criminal, seemingly criminal conduct, which is, yeah, uh, is sort of wouldn't otherwise be if they had those supports. Um, So then I guess moving to the next chapter, um, which is a public laws model for cognitive communication risk, and that's by Joseph Volzeslek. Can you tell me about the kinds of disorders that put individuals at risk for cognitive communication risks? And how did these manifest in terms of the disadvantages that certain individuals face when coming into contact with the criminal justice system?
1: Yes. Um, well, basically the whole range of neurodisabilities covered in the book would fall under that concern. Um, so that would include acquired brain injury, addiction, intellectual disability, FASD, as well as mental health disorders, I think. They, they all impact cognitive mechanisms and, um, such as working memory processing speed and executive uh functioning um and i think the the interface i mean the, the justice system is really complex uh, you know at the best of times and 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 for most people um i mean it, it has a particular language and a particular culture that that most people don't understand unless you've been trained in it so if you then have a cognitive disability that makes it more difficult to process information and understand instructions, and 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 maybe speak in air or express yourself in the way you would like to—that obviously disadvantages someone, you know, uh, to a significant degree across that whole system.
0: Yeah, and um, I think it's—I mean, oh, sorry, go on.
1: No, no, I think these. I think the point before as well that these things are often invisible. Yes, yeah, so you can't see them. Which is why you know testing and, and uh, um, yeah, it, it, it's it's incredibly important because it, it kind of it it's kind of what what's, what underpins the kind of revolving door to the prison that we speak about in the book that people go in and out because you know they they have no other option but
0: yeah I mean I think um, the legal system can be difficult for lawyers to navigate um, notwithstanding someone who may have a disability that is invisible to others. It's it's sort of the mind boggles how, how complex it must be trying to navigate that system without familiarity of it. Um, so then drawing these sort of two chapters together, the chapter with relation to insanity and all also this one, um, put forward a public health framework with regard to the impact of neurodisability in the operation of criminal law and those that come into contact with it. So the first chapter... Puts for focuses on insanity and, as you said, the differences between insanity and neurodisability. Um, While well, this chapter looks at the barriers to free and open cognitive communication, can you tell me a little bit more about the idea of a public health model in the context of neurodisability?
1: Mm. Yes, I, I think the, the public health model is something, particularly within chronology, that we keep arguing for um, because a lot of these behaviours um, become criminalized. It's, it's, and they often, the people who end up in prison, yeah, this are not the rich people who had a car accident because they have a good lawyer and they can argue their way in and out of this. The people intersect with disability, other kinds of disability, with poverty, uh, with disadvantage across a range of factors. Um, which means, and as I said, if you can't change your behaviour, then, then the criminal law and, and the threat of punishment is ineffective. Then, then which, I mean, it's ridiculous to use it, yeah? So if you want to change behaviour, you have to do something else. So I think a public health approach um, is, is, the, is the way to go. Like, this is not about crime. It's about health. Um, and from an early age, I mean... We talked to people who were who now, you know, repeat offenders, but who had been victims of domestic violence as children. Um, one man we spoke to whose whose father had hit him over the head with a hammer and had a traumatic brain injury as a consequence, but also obviously the trauma of living in that stressful environment uh, contributes to your brain not developing properly, which we speak about in other chapters. Um, and and to have like a criminal approach to that person's behavior, it's it's not helping anyone. It's just creating more victimization and and trauma and and a whole generation of kind of institutionalized people. Uh, so that's that's the argument, I guess. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and that makes sense because I think what the criminal justice system does is it focuses on focuses on the legal issue, and solves the legal issue in isolation from the other sort of um, I think. Luke Clements describes it as these systems of collective injustice which can exacerbate disadvantage and so it does certainly make more sense to approach it from a criminological perspective of a public health model. Um, Another way these sort of issues have been understood or at least analysed are from the perspective of the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities Um, and the next chapter actually relates to this. It's by Penelope Weller, and it's called Access to Justice in the CRPD: An Australian Perspective. So she writes, uh, especially with regards to people with neurodisabilities and acquired brain injuries, analysed through the lens of the CRPD. Can you tell me a little bit about what makes Australia unique, um, and what are some of the commonalities that can be applied more broadly?
1: Well, I think this this is my non-scientific view, but I think what makes Australia unique is is that we've been quite rubbish at adopting and implementing human rights uh instruments across a range of areas yeah and and you know recent examples around refugees and indigenous people and confinement of young people and i think as as penelope uh um refers to in her chapters it says like the, the um the understanding of issues in relation to rights of persons with disability in australia is emerging And <laughs> i think that's an accurate description uh it's it's uh, yeah it needs a lot more work but I think the commonalities that Australia has with other countries is the barriers to access to justice, um, and there's there's a list of these things in, in this book. And I don't even, I don't know if you want to if I want to quote some of this, but uh, it, it speaks to all of these issues. I think so, so things like um, a greater likelihood of incarceration, um, including in circumstances in which charges and arrests were unwarranted um family violence victims being evicted for reasons that are not their fault such as damage to the rental home by the perpetrator um, inability to resolve debt and fines and so on and so forth um, people remaining at risk of harm violence exploitation uh families being split when children are unnecessarily removed and so on and so forth there's a range of barriers and and different chapters cover a different of them but this is something that 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 we have in common um, with, with everyone else that we've been speaking to in this field and that's the kind of immediate thing I think we need to to address.
0: Yeah, and it, it is a huge problem. So moving to part two of the book and I found this really interesting because it's not something that I'm familiar with at all um, and it's about the needs of young people with neurodisabilities. So can you just to sort of give a broad brush Overview: What are some of the specific needs of young people with neurodisabilities when they come into contact with the criminal justice system?
1: Yes, well, I think the needs of, of young people um, in, in general is, is quite similar. Obviously, then with a disability, it uh, it becomes a lot uh, a lot worse. Um, so some some barriers uh, will be systemic because I mean, they systemic, uh, procedural, and, and cultural, for example but systemic, um, it's a lack of coordination between different services such as child uh, uh, welfare and protection, health, uh, education and justice. They all operate in silos very often and child just binds around between them. Uh, The procedural ones around the, you know, the rigidity and the complexity of the system and and, uh, what the judges wear and how they speak and and, and so on and so forth. Um, And the kind of cultural uh, barriers, um, uh about the understanding I think of these these issues so that there would be a range uh, of them and obviously then with, with the symptoms that we talked about before of neurodisability, it becomes incredibly uh complex. And I think just to, I think yeah just some some just by way of illustration and I uh, even I was when I reread this book <laughs> the last day um there is on um, one on pages here. Uh, a table that just lists the overrepresentation representation of, of, of young people um, this is in the UK and so people with learning or intellectual stability this is page 102 in the book um, the prevalence amongst uh, you know general population is 2 to 4 percent in young people in custody is 23 to 32 percent um, Fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is uh, is between point 0.1% to five percent in the general population and up to eleven to twenty one, and I think in Australia that will be doubled, particularly in in, in Western Australia and Northern Territory. Um, communication impairment, uh, general population five to seven percent, in custody sixty to ninety, uh, at an ADHD between two and nine compared to twelve. So I think. I think that paints a pretty clear picture of how the system fails young people with, with neurodisabilities.
0: Yeah, there's obviously some uh, disjunction between the lack of community support and the prevalence of young people with neurodisabilities who are in custody, um, which, of course, itself can have long-term, lifelong implications um, for those children and their development. So then how do we go about dismantling some of the barriers to justice for children um, affected by neurodisabilities. Um, This is a chapter that Francis Sheehan, Nathan Hughes, Hugh Williams, and Prathiba Chisabin write about. Um, And so I'm interested, um, just to start with, what are the various points of contact that children with neurodisabilities tend to encounter with the criminal justice process? And how does this manifest in a denial of equal access to justice?
1: Mm. So some of the barriers we talked about, they are procedural and cultural and so on and so forth, but the point of contact um, for, for children, and this is very similar to the research we see here in Australia, um, happens early on, often these cho- the, the children we see in prison and custody, yeah, they're often removed from families at an early age, so they run away because of family violence in the home, so they're already disadvantaged from that stage. Um, some, some would end up in, in a good kind of care situation, many do not. Uh, the care homes and, and the things that we have in Australia and similar in the UK are are not fit for purpose and, and further trauma, uh, physical, mental, sexual abuse, more violence, and so on and so forth. Um, the problem there and, and same in the UK and other other countries that they the when 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 children act up as they see challenging behaviour in those situations instead of seeing that as a result of the trauma that they bring with them those people call the police like staff would call the police because they don't know how to manage them I and mean, it's incredibly difficult to manage and especially when you have lots of children with, this, with those kinds of trauma so the police is called and then this is what we talk about disability and, and disadvantage being criminalized because that's that's when they then yeah so that's how it begins and then then it's really hard to to get out of that system um there's research here in Australia uh, by Susie By who talks about crossover children these are the kids who end up in care and then go to juvenile prison and then to adult prison and they're just stuck for the rest of their lives they're in this system and they all come from backgrounds of trauma and, and very often neurodisability. So, yeah, it's not a happy story.
0: <laughs> no, and it is. It's, it touches on what you mentioned before and what one of the later chapters in the book is about um, the revolving door of prison and custody for people with neurodisabilities um, and so the next chapter is on trauma, but I think you've answered a lot of those questions. That's a neurodisability and trauma in children and young people in contact with the law. So perhaps we'll move on to uh, the chapter following. And that's about how, we, because you've, you've touched on the, the barriers to equal access to justice um, and how some of those are systemic and procedural, there's a lack of coordination between the sort of different services so then let's talk about protecting vulnerable child defendants in England and Wales because this is quite an interesting case study and that there was a chapter on that by Seanine Lamb and Catherine Hollingsworth. So in this chapter, the authors argue that conflating children with a broader category of vulnerable defendants has caused children to be written out of rights. Can you speak a little more to this point?
1: Uh, yes, a little, but not too much because uh, I'm, a, I'm not a legal expert, so, so people who want the yeah, they have to read the chapter. But it's, it's again, it's the, it's the trying to look for solution and, and to say that vulnerable defendants, that could be anyone. Yes, could it could be an adult who's vulnerable because of a mental health disorder or a neurodisability. But children are unique. Uh, and I think the previous chapters uh, around trauma and so on and, and um, Nathan Hughes and his colleagues, uh, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to this kind of neuropsychology stuff, but about brain development and... and and what what when the brain develops in in different areas and what trauma at those ages might do. So when it comes to children in front of the courts to understand that their brain development that and and the ten year old cannot understand or or plan in, in the way. So even uh, as is in, in that particular chapter about the James Bulger case and, and Robert Thompson and John Venables, who were there were nine yeah at the, at the time they did it but they, they turned 10 for the turn to went to court but they were tried as adults which obviously was a massive problem from a legal point of view but the the way they were presented in the press and 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 you know i mean they were they were seen as the devil's spawn quote unquote and and as evil like there was no and and since then very little recognition of their own perhaps victimization and the lack of maturity like Everyone focused on the horrific acts that they did, and they were horrific. Uh, um, But that also then kind of thing kind of did not allow for people to ask the questions that should have been asked about why do children like this do this? And, and, you know, how can we help children as opposed to how can we punish them? Uh, So I think that chapter um, deals with some of those really complex questions.
0: Mm. And it was interesting when they wrote about those cases when they went to um, the European Court of Human Rights, and it was held that notwithstanding that the proceedings were made more child friendly, that the as children, they were still unable to effectively participate in the trial. Um, I mean, it does make sense because it's intimidating for an adult person without a neurodisability, even a lawyer, to go to court. So it's, yeah, it's difficult to imagine for a child um, who's treated like an adult um, what the experience would be and how it would be possible to make it um, more child-friendly and actually not uh, a strange get a better outcome in terms of justice.
1: Yeah, yeah. no, it's such a strange, I mean, the court is such a strange environment. and You know, we see it on TV and it's, it's interesting, but as someone who is there as the accused, you, you are not even allowed to speak. You know, you can't, someone speaks on your behalf and, and you rely on, and they speak in a language and vocabulary that we don't understand. And I know that from our students that, you know, they have to go to court for a day and do the court report, And they're like, couldn't hear what they were saying. And I didn't understand what they were saying. And it happened so quickly. In 10 minutes, there was the next case. And, like, it's a really, it's a very particular environment. So for, for a child or someone with a disability or someone who has both of those things, yeah, as a young person, disability, it's almost impossible.
0: Um, yeah, it's uh, it's difficult to comprehend So, then one uh, group of children who do have neurodisabilities and appear more frequently than the others, as you just said, um, looking at the statistics, so 11 to 21% of young people in custody uh, in England and Wales have fetal alcohol syndrome disorder, and it's possibly double in Western Australia or the Northern Territory. So, turning to the chapter on that, how does fetal alcohol syndrome disorder influence an individual as they move through the criminal justice process?
1: Yes yeah I mean yeah so it's estimated I think in Australia here it's it's 10 to 40 times higher um, amongst um, the populations within correctional and psychiatric care and and, and special education care settings yeah compared to the general population Um, and I think um, so I think both of where they're involved and the kind of challenges they face, I think it's kind of the same same answer there. But um, so some of the challenges we've talked about before is, is similar because because it falls under umbrella term of, of neurodisability. Um, but in general, so individuals with FASD often have problems with memory, attention, language and communication, uh, cognition, understanding social rules and expectations, uh, regulating emotions, uh, abstract thinking, Decision making, reasoning, and understanding cause and effect, and motor and skills. Um, and these are the kind of primary deficits that these children are born with. Yeah. Um, we can always have a very complex and quite devastating impacts on their lives, but they often then intersect with, with disadvantage, poverty uh, in Australia, racism, I would argue. Um, but also then that leads to poor mental health, substance abuse, school failure, unemployment, and then you're in the justice system. Um, and, and that's something that we see um, in Australia, in particular in relation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, populations. Um, um, and yeah, and they're all represented in general, but, but particularly in juvenile prisons. And, and uh, a, a very high percentage of them um, seems to have a capacity diagnosis.
0: So then what we've got on one hand, we've had these really interesting case studies of, from the perspective of people who come into contact with the criminal justice system who do have neurodisabilities, um, both adults and children. And then on the other hand, the next part of the book turns and looks at the responses to neurodisability within the criminal justice system. I found this really interesting to sort of think about um, because often lawyers think they know a lot. So I really liked this chapter on titled What Do Lawyers Really Know About Neurodisability? Confusion, Obfuscation and Dereliction of Duty. And that was by uh, you and the other two co-editors, Gay Landstor, Bernadette Saunders, and also Rebecca Bunn. So what do lawyers know about neurodisability?
1: Not enough is the short answer. (laughs) uh, So the people who do know... Because, yeah, so so different lawyers, yeah, but but people who work in legal aid in particular, they know quite a lot because they are the ones who see these people the most because it intersects so strongly with disadvantage and poverty uh, when it comes to justice involvement. Um, But they would know, like, as they say, like, when someone walks into the office and speaks to them, they would just know that something is a little off. um, And that falls under the general kind of umbrella term then of neurodisability, but they don't know what it is. Uh, and no one can know unless they have a proper kind of neuropsychological evaluations, which is expensive. Um, so unless it's a court-ordered one, um, the clients can't afford to pay for it and, and lawyers won't cover it. So so they, they don't know enough uh, about the the how it presents, and that's again the hidden aspects of it for the ones who you can't see. Um, and because you're trained in that particular particular system, how do you change the way you communicate with someone like that? How do you have to explain things differently? Perhaps you have to repeat things, you have to write them down. Um, uh, how do you support them? Maybe they need uh, other kinds of support during the court proceedings um, that some jurisdictions have implemented. So there's a general lack and, and law school don't teach it. Um, now we do it here because we did the research. We, have, we told Monash you have to you have to you have to teach students about this because they will meet these people over and over again uh, if you work in in the, within the criminal justice type area. Anyway,
0: that's interesting. So then, I guess my next question is, and you've sort of um, already half answered it, but what should lawyers know? And do you have any recommendations? Um, I think it's really innovative that they are being taught at Monash because I certainly, as an undergrad, was not taught. And when I've taught criminal law, where I am now in Hong Kong, there's no contemplation that this is part of the curriculum.
1: Yeah, I, I think they should know one, what it is, yeah, just the definition. Uh, and, and the reason why they should know is because this group is so overrepresented. Um, so, so if, if it wasn't it wouldn't be so much of an issue yeah but because it's between you know 60 to to 80 percent of people in prison with a neurodisability, uh, it is incredibly important for them to do their job effectively they want to defend someone um particularly yeah um I guess the, the challenge for law school is that, that people don't know what they're going to do when they finish and, and maybe they want to work in, in business law and they don't care about this but you know as our as our job as educators to teach them things they don't need they don't think they need uh, or they, you know, but they might need it later. <laughs> and uh, so they need to, I I mean, it's always a challenge. So if someone presents with it within an ABI that is completely invisible, then you can't actually, the behavior is not strange. Like you can't see the cognitive processing. Then it's very little you can do. And these people will fall through the net in different ways. Um, but I think having a basic kind of, even like a little, you know, leaflets, like this is what, what it is, these are the symptoms, these are the reasons for it, and, and also how they intersect. I think that's incredibly important with mental health and addiction, for example, because it's often misinterpreted as the addiction is the problem. That might actually be the the result of an underlying neurodisability or, or a tool of self-medication, for example. So, yes, Um And then they should know, and I know we know here in in Melbourne when we did the research, that to be well-connected to support organisations in the community uh, who can help these people outside of of the very kind of narrow justice focus.
0: Yeah, so then that way the criminal justice isn't isn't the trigger to accessing support and services. Um, It's in the community to start with where people need it. Um, That seems a lot more sensible approach, I think. Um, And so then sort of giving a practical example, the next chapter was written by Magistrate Pauline Spencer and it's called Towards Dignity, Better Court Pathways for People with Lived Experience of Acquired Brain Injury. Now, Magistrate Spencer gave a really interesting account of the ways that people with an acquired brain injury and neurodisability move through the court process. She gave a unique example or perhaps sorry it's not unique um, but she gives an account of a man named Joel who spends his day waiting in court for the mention of his charges. Now Joel was charged with and I think this picks up on what you said before about the sort of intersecting problems that people face. It's not just neurodisability, but there are other issues going on um, for example like poverty, access to social services, um, health um, and a whole myriad of sorts of things. So uh, coming back to the example, Joel was charged with breaking a window at a social security office because his income was cut off um, and then he missed too many appointments. So he's at the court and he waits through lunchtime and then he's hungry but he's too embarrassed to say to anyone that he has no money for lunch. So what he does, he goes home because he has some bread there but then he misses this mention and a warrant is issued for his arrest. He's later arrested and because he's got previous charges for minor offences, he's held on remand. Now, he's really stressed because he's been homeless before and he's worried about losing this home that he's just secured. So when he finally appears before the magistrate, he's anxious, shifts in his chair and he interrupts. Um, I can't imagine this would go down particularly well in court. There's no reference made at all to his disability and then he's sentenced to two months in jail. So now this exacerbates his stress because he will lose his home and he'll end up homeless all over again. Now, this court process seems to actually perpetrate discrimination against Joel rather than lending him any sort of assistance and perpetrates his disadvantage. Can you tell me how typical Joel's experience might be and what could be done by way of reform?
1: It's very typical. This is, uh, it's heartbreaking, you know, and, and And there are people like Joel who, who they, they're try to do the right thing and they try to follow instructions for people in authority and they, and they fail all the time. Um, and, and there's nothing they can do to change that. Um, and, and we have magistrates like Paul and Spencer and others here who are just amazing uh, in their job. And, and the magistrates, I think, have so much knowledge about this and, and I think that's where the solutions should start because uh, they, they really know what they're doing. Um, so yeah, very common um two, two common, yeah, and and, and uh, this is what we I think what we mean when we talk about the of disability and poverty and disadvantage, yeah. So two things here that in terms of reform and, and that we I think we mentioned some of that in in this chapter, uh, and Pauline does, and, and we have some in, in our other research. Uh, one is within the judicial system and the other part is is connected to it. So I think the specific court-based possible solution uh first so, so in victoria which is melbourne uh, australia where we do this research there are two initiatives that seem to be working really well uh, when dealing with people in court who present with with complex uh, and intersectional problems like the ones we discussed uh, today uh, the first one is kisp that stands for court integrated services program uh, it runs from from uh, all the kind of mainstream magistrates court um, and provide case-based individual support for a person who's on bail, which is the key thing here. Yeah, which includes then a neurological screening and assessment and referral and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so that's been really good, but it's limited in terms. So you have to be on bail, so you can't have a serious offence. You have to have a a um, an address where they can reach you. And people who are homeless, they don't, so they don't qualify, and and so on. Uh, which is which is so yeah. So some people. Too many for outsider of that. The the other one is called the Assessment and Referral Court or the ARC list. Um, Pauline Spencer works in, in one of those. We have a few others, and these are simply amazing. And we were invited to sit in on quite a few of these and, and, and look how they operate. And and uh, and it's a pre-sentence program, so it's so it's it's not about guilt or, or, or innocence. It's about what do we now do to help this person and uh, to find find different solutions. This is, this is a program for people with lived experience of mental and, and cognitive impairment, and they receive a coordinated service in accordance with an individual support plan. Uh, and that plan is developed in collaboration with the participants so they understand what it is, and with expert assistance of a clinical and a case-managed team. And it, it's really quite fabulous. And the and evaluations show that the reoffending rate uh, is reduced Significantly, for the group that it's on this initiative, um, and of course we keep them out of prison and further harm. Yeah, the the challenge is, um, which relates to the more general issue, is is that um, there's not enough community-based support for people, so we need more services to link them into. Uh, it's one thing to know what their needs are, but if no one is working in that space, or they might be full, or they're, they're waiting for the next funding round, like these things should be funded on a on a continuous basis, as opposed to year yeah. on year, or depending on what government you know is, is is in charge. So the community part is incredibly important, uh, and the knowledge they have combined with the magistrate could could basically fix this. You know what I mean? But and I mean prison is so expensive, yeah, to to send someone and. It's a hundred thousand dollars per year for us to have one person in high security, and if that money can be used uh, in, in community-based kind of support that is individually tailored, because the individual aspect is crucial, yeah, because everyone will have a different presentation of, of this uh, of, of their disability, um, then I think we can have a massive impact. But that takes a bit of you know political will, <laughs> and and it does seem, I guess. Um, Correspond with some of the uh, here in Australia, at least I think a lot of anglophone countries with this uh, tough on crime approach. Yeah, um, looks as being too nice and cuddly, but but if we are serious about reducing reoffending and reducing you know intergenerational trauma, victimisation, um, these kind of, of, of things is is they need to be done.
0: Yeah, no, that's interesting because a lot of this law and order sort of politics actually. Um, is propagated under the banner of like protecting community safety and doing it in the interest of the public and yet if this is one solution to redirect resources then it it does seem like it would actually better protect the community so um yeah it seems like as you say it does need political will but it does seem like a solution that would improve the lives of these people who come into contact with the criminal justice system um and it's sort of trying to prevent uh, what you talk about in the next chapter, about the revolving prison door. Um, and you say that it's an international problem through the viewed through an Australian lens. And again, you've written this chapter with your other co-editors. So can you tell me, you have um, mentioned it already, but can you tell me more about this revolving prison door and what is also unique about the Australian context?
1: Yeah, the... Um... Yeah, so, so it's, it's, as we said, people who come into contact with, with the justice system because of their uh, neurodisability and then, as, as the example of Joel, they're unable to, to navigate the way out of it. Um, some, some people with some kinds of neurodisability function quite well in prison, depending on the prison, because it's a very structured environment. You're told what to do, you're told when to get up, what to eat, where to go, uh, here's your medication. You don't have to think too much on your own. But when they are then released and they have none of that structure, they fail really quickly and they then reoffend. and obviously because they have an underlying, you know, uh, brain injury or, or cognitive disability, uh, they will repeat the same offendi- offending, like getting on the train without a ticket or, or you know, uh, or even being involved in violence and so on and so forth. So, um and that's the revolt. Yeah, so that was reincarcerated over and over again uh, and we could kind of break that cycle with the current uh, approach that, that we have, yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah, and just the idea that, for example, someone can be in prison, and I know it is really common, for something like riding a to train without a ticket just seems to sort of undermine the principles of criminal justice, such as like punishment and deterrence um, and rehabilitation. It just sort of there is this huge disjuncture. So then in prison, you've just mentioned that some people actually might do better in the sense that there's routine, but then they end up back there. What are some of the additional challenges that a person with an ABI might face once they are in prison? And can you suggest ways that might provide better accommodation?
1: Yes, uh, I think the two sides to that. One is is people who continue to offend while they're in prison, and other ones become victims. Yeah, depending again depending on the, their disability. Um, so if you have a problem with impulse control and aggressiveness and and those kind of behaviour, you're going to be in fights every day for your sentence. That's the, the whole the whole environment is is geared up for that. Um, But if you uh, have difficulty um, managing your emotions or personal boundaries, a lot of people are victimized uh, physically, sexually, socially, um, uh, throughout the sentence and and some end up in protected custody, which is really hard to get out of as well. Um, So so all of those kind of more extreme things. But but there's also, I think, in looking at solutions, how that can be met, I think, Staff training is crucial, and we're not doing it well in Australia. Um, staff don't understand necessarily. Some do, who have experience, who work for a long time. Some don't, and some don't care. Uh, they just want people to go to A to B. And so, if someone misses a meeting, you get penalised for that. Yeah, but they just didn't remember because they can't remember the time. Um, so, it needs to be staff needs to be better to trained to deal with the complex. Individuals who are in prison, in in press, like in contemporary society, this is not the turnkeys that they used to be, you know, or the kind of honest crooks, as people refer to them, still. That um, they, there are so many with these issues that they need training in that, and they don't get that. Um, in terms of physical solutions, uh, and this is my area of research, we so could talk about this all day. Um, but even ways to redesign and build prisons slightly differently, like even like the accommodations. So at the moment, like a wing or a unit. Is between thirty six or seventy two people, depending on on single or double bunking, um, and we see from some of the comparative work that I do in Norway, for example, that the smaller wings, when you have twelve people or even six people, work much 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 better, um, both to manage for for staff and for and for the people who live there. Um, some of prisons in, in, in Australia and Victoria, because they changed the law in relation to people with intellectual disability, so they tend to live in these special units but they are a you know, minority of people with neurodisabilities in prison who live in, in mainstream. Um, so, that, yeah, so staff training and 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 a, a physical prison that is, is better equipped to deal with complex behaviours. Um,
0: and so would you say then there's specific resource constraints within prison that hinder the opportunity of providing these sort of alternative accommodations or is it an issue of resource reallocation Is that something, like, I don't know if that's
1: something you can comment on. So the the problem with, it's not about reallocation, the problem is politics, that there is no political will to reallocate funds in that way that would better support prisoners and and people with neurodisability in the ways that we've outlined. Uh, It's a tough on crime approach. Um, Community safety is is the buzzword, yeah, but I tend to... uh, Ask people to rethink that that the prison might offer short-term community safety while that particular person is locked up. If he or she now is actually dangerous, which many of them are not, but we need to think about long-term community safety, which will happen when these people are released. Secondly, the people who are in prison—they are also our community. Yeah, they're also citizens. They're, 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 what about their safety, which is also not thought about because we don't like being—you know—being nice to prisoners in this country. It's not being nice, it's about being just, and I think, and, and about recognizing individual circumstances. So, um, so the politics is lacking, the money isn't lacking. We're spending an enormous amount of money on building new prisons in, in all states and territories in Australia, building high security as opposed to low security, uh, which we keeps we keep driving up incarceration and, and re offending. So, there are things that, that we can do uh, without spending more money, but spending them differently.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and then so bringing all of these cap- chapters together, what surprised you most about the research?
1: Um, for me, I think, especially for the last project that we did, the the number of children who experienced serious trauma in early life and our society's failure to appropriately respond to that. Um, I think that's ups- it's tragic. Uh, but I think the numbers uh, surprised me uh, in, in that way. Um, yes, surprising, I guess, but always all disappointing is Australia's approach for dealing with crime and social disorder by way of punishment. And as we said, the constant uh, political argument for longer and harsher sentence instead of attention to the causes of crime and prevention. And, and like it, it goes in the too hard basket. And um, as opposed to kind of the justice reinvestment or public health or or therapeutic jurisprudence type approaches, that we that could be much more effective in reducing crime and reducing reoffending. That you would think should be the aim of the system, as opposed to just punishing.
0: And so, then, what would you say are the next steps in terms of research and reform?
1: Well, I think the the I think all the chapters outline quite a few of those suggestions. Uh, so. so I think two things. One, I think it's up to other people now to to uh, to pick whatever they are interested in and doing research where, where they are um, in, in these areas. And the second is 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 for us and, and for other people in the space to uh, better translate our findings into um, a format that is easily communicated to policy and and those kind of stakeholders. So it's more the kind of direct impactful reform that we want to work on. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and to present the research, I think, in a more kind of non-academic way. And I think podcasting. Like, this is obviously a really good step towards that. And I think there are other ways we can be a bit more innovative around these things. So so those two uh, dual kind of ways forward is what I'm thinking.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Community education, um, especially to perhaps counter some of the um, rhetoric on law and order and community safety, may may make some impact. So now, Anna, I've taken up a lot of your time, but just before you go, the Traditional New Books Network, last question, what are you working on now?
1: Um, quite a few things, <laughs> which is, I think, what would tend to be the, the, the case. Um, so I, I did a, a previous project, um, a big comparative project between Australia and Norway and looking at prisons and and why they work or don't work and the differences and, and so on. And, and I'm still writing up things from from that, so... Um, I'm, I'm writing a current one, looking at the roles of, of uniforms and clothes in prison. That, that uh, for example, in Norway, prisoners don't wear uh, prison uniforms; they wear their own clothes. And and some prison staff don't wear uniforms; they have their own clothes because it's low security. And it's interesting how that impacts, you know, identity and interaction and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm also working on a new research project that's funded by the Australian Research Council on. What I, what I call social infrastructure in prisons. Um, this is, um, it basically explores the way staff and prisoners interact and how innovations in the prison environment uh, can support positive and respectful human connections with the aim of reducing the harm of imprisonment, but also better post-release uh, outcomes um so that will be that will be for the next few years and the final major thing uh, is around justice involved veterans This just work i do with colleagues in the uk germany and canada and um, we're going to increase the presence here in australia so this is based this former uh, military former service personnel who who either end up working in the prison uh, or being prisoners themselves to, because of, of failures basically of transition out of, of the military so it's kind of looking at total institutions and and how people move in between them in different spaces. So uh, those are the main kind of three things. And then always small bits and pieces here and there for fun, you know.
0: Well, coming from a law perspective, the criminological research that you're doing sounds really fascinating um, and a sort of great way to get your hands dirty and get into the field and actually make practical, meaningful changes. So I will really look forward to reading about that. Uh, now, just to wrap up, I'm Jane Richards and I've been speaking with Associate Professor Anna Erickson. She's a co-editor of a book called Neuro Disability and the Criminal Justice System, Comparative Therapeutic Responses. It was published by Edward, Edward Elgar Publishing in 2021. This is New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. Anna Erickson, thank you for your time.
1: Thank you so much, Jane. I really enjoyed that. Thanks.
0: The pleasure's all at mine.